0: You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives.
1: Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. In our department, the first Deputy Commissioner is the second in command, overseeing the day-to-day administration of the agency, including budget, 911 dispatching, fleet, and facilities, to name a few. With us today is our first deputy commissioner Laura Cavanaugh. Welcome commissioner.
2: Hey chief. Happy to be here.
1: Normally at this point in the podcast we get into bios usually which engine and ladder you worked in which firehouses or areas of the city but you have a different experience maybe you give us a brief bio.
2: Sure. Well, I was not a firefighter, so I can't speak to any uh, good fire stories or any companies (laughs) I worked in. But to give you a sense of where I came from, before I worked here, I worked at City Hall for a bit. And before that, I worked for about a decade in consulting. And so I worked with candidates, labor unions, nonprofits uh, around their organizational goals. Uh, And, you know, why is that relevant to the fire department? Uh, That's actually a question I get asked a lot is, I spent, you know, much of my career showing up in a new place, not knowing what their needs were, not knowing what their structure was or their culture was, and having to learn that overnight and then give them a plan for meeting their goals. So that's a a skill I've built up over the course of my career, and it's certainly one I've utilized here, and I'd say, you know, that's where my background is without getting into the details, but that's also really what I do here day to day is I I learn from fire and EMS operations what they need and then I figure out how to get it done. A lot of my job is future facing, trying to figure out what the department might need five years from now or two years from now or a year from now, whereas fire and EMS operations every day they're out there in the field responding to calls so they're dealing with the immediate. I tried to deal with, you know, what are we going to need in five years and, and how can we put some time and effort into making a plan to get where we need to be.
1: So much to talk about, but here we go. Why don't we start off with the department's operations throughout the pandemic? I know how the operations were in the field, but I also know there was so much went on behind the scenes, especially here at the executive level. And here in New York City, you know, we did have a pandemic plan and we had H1N1, SARS, Ebola. We did have some procedures in place. How did that prepare our department for this response?
2: Well, I think it's worth saying that this is one emergency we're still in, and we don't know when it will be over. And that's probably the biggest difference between our past experiences. And this one is the uncertainty of when COVID-19 will be over as an emergency. So we're definitely still in it, but we did learn a lot from the first wave. You know, obviously COVID-19 is a new thing for the whole world, including the FDNY, but we have been through, you know, various outbreaks, and I think it's a testament to the fire department how well those outbreaks have been dealt with in the past. We played a large role in the fact that they were contained. And the, the money, the equipment, the training that our members do every day, largely grant-funded, uh, I should mention is really what helped us be ready in some way for COVID. Um, Much of the equipment, much of the PPE, and much of the training, especially around donning and doffing, much of that was not new for the fire department. And I, I do think we really relied on the pandemic plan. It really was helpful. It carved out phases. So in each phase, there was a suggested list of criteria, policies that should be considered and should be moved to, were we to move into that phase. Um, what I think was the toughest part about COVID, and I would say this for the city, was that, you know, COVID went from being a potential outbreak or a couple of cases like Ebola to community widespread literally overnight. And I think now the the city and the country understands in retrospect that by the time we knew it was here, it had actually been here for a very long time. And I think that was by far what was most Difficult in yeah. headquarters. A
1: constantly evolving strategy is what. Yeah, you know, yeah.
2: I what I'd put it as sort of a there was a battle rhythm. You know, every day, you'd wake up first thing in the morning, and there'd be a new set of criteria. Some of which might contradict the set of criteria you'd been given the night before. And you know, and this is all coming down first from the feds, then to the state, then to the city. And so you have to go through that whole process. You know, we'd be on the phone all day. We'd we'd meet five times a day on that new criteria put together plans that addressed it, send it out, and then you'd wake up the next morning and the CDC had said something different. Or maybe even the CDC was saying that they didn't know. So I think there are a few things that made and continue to make COVID-19 so difficult and so different from past outbreaks that we've experienced here in the city. First of all, it's sheer deadliness. Whether we're looking at New York City as a whole or even within the department itself, We've had to grieve the loss of our own members, both uniformed and civilian, as well as people in the communities we serve and friends and family as well, all at the same time. So much about the disease was unknown and was unfolding so rapidly that it was very hard to get that information from, you know, the top of the pyramid down to the bottom. And I know from talking to our members, that was really stressful for them, which I can completely understand. And yeah. it was, that was difficult here, in, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. I do think that that is why we are better prepared for a second wave because not only do we know more about the disease, but we also have already had the time to put together plans. You know, if call volume reaches this and the state implements that, then here's what we're going to need to do. And so I do think that even in a second wave, obviously we hope we don't get there, but even if we did, I think that you would see not such an onslaught of information and not as much conflicting information. because for better or worse, we've been through this once. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that we're looking at is how to protect ourselves from the uncertainty of the supply chain. While we do have a very large supply of N95 masks and PPE, what concerned us in the first wave and still concerns us now, no matter how much PPE we have, is with an unreliable supply chain, it makes it really hard to plan because you never know when that supply chain is gonna fail you and the last thing you want is it for it to fail you in the middle of an emergency especially one where we don't know how long that emergency is going to go on.
1: CSU, another integral part of this job.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: How has the Counseling Services Unit addressed the effects of this emergency on the members in the field?
2: So CSU has been fantastic, as, as they always are. You know, they, they deal with these difficult situations a lot, so they're really well-equipped for this kind of emergency. I'd say one big piece that we worked with them to build up during COVID is serving our EMS population and making sure that the PTSD, the stress that may come from an extended emergency, which is more unique in the department to have an emergency at this point with no end date, to make sure that we were equipped to deal with that, particularly when it comes to EMS. And so, you know, actually, thanks to the FDNY Foundation, we invested a significant amount of money in CSU and the peer program, and they went and they visited every member of EMS and all of our firehouses to check in with people following COVID, to let them know about how to recognize the signs uh, of stress. Stress and grief are sneaky. They do not always show themselves in ways that are obvious. And I think that's especially true of people who are used to being the rock and being the one that people depend on. You usually are not gonna see the effects of it in the middle of the emergency. You're usually gonna see it months later when you find yourself too tired to get out of bed. And so that's the message we're really trying to get across to our members is, you know, stay vigilant even now and into the future for those signs in yourselves and others. So those two things were really important to get to the membership right away, make sure they knew that someone was there for them and that they could talk about this experience, but also to make sure we had the funds because, as you know, in, in this fiscal situation, you know, funds are really limited, the pool is tight, and so the foundation really came in and made sure that we can continue to address I think what will be the lingering results of COVID. You know, I go to firehouses and EMS stations, and each and every visit, I am continually impressed by the bravery of our members, by their positivity, their ability to to cope and bounce back with the things they see every day, especially during COVID. I visited every EMS station, and our members were going through things that I think most people just couldn't deal with, and our members were not only dealing with it, but, you know, positive and saying to me, you know, this is what I was trained to do. And this goes for the entirety of the department, you know, whether we're talking about our units cleaning and disinfecting facilities and the equipment and the apparatus our IT staff ensuring that people could work from home remotely as quickly as possible, and our fire prevention inspectors taking on new duties to keep people safe. Everybody has adapted. Everybody has continually proven why we are uh, New York's best and bravest, from the person you get when you call 911 to the units that show up at your front door.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You
2: know, during COVID-19, everybody had to learn a new policy quickly, be trained, and then ultimately perform that policy in the field, often in the same day you know, have to remember and think back to the height of the crisis in the spring. This was all done with, you know, a huge level of uncertainty in terms of who would fall ill, what situations they were facing at home with their family. I really can't speak highly enough of this department. And I know that the fire commissioner, Dan Nigro, and the chief of department, John Sudnick, feel the exact same way. This was and continues to be a team effort, truly. And as we move forward, it will continue to be one as we look to reopen our facilities fully, our headquarters in Brooklyn, uh, or get our fire safety and CPR educators back into our neighborhood schools. We're going to do it safely, and so that means continuing to social distance, continuing to wear our masks. I have one here now. Of course, it has an FDNY logo on it, and it's a team effort, and we have to look out for one another as we continue to serve the public.
1: We're talking about some scary things we don't even like to talk about right now. You know, furloughs, demotions, layoffs, things in my career we have never spoken about. Many departments across the nation are facing the same difficult fiscal decisions we are. I know that things are still unfolding and some things you definitely can't get into. But our membership would like to know, is there any possible way you give us any sort of update?
2: So I can definitely give you an update. I'm going to say that in this fluid situation, which is both COVID and the fiscal crisis, and obviously they they overlap, you know, one is causing the other. Nothing's ever certain, but I also don't I don't think that we should wait to tell our membership what's happening until we have certain information. If that was the case, I don't think i could tell anyone anything for months at best and so you know i do go out to fire and ems stations and this is one of the chief questions i get asked and i try to tell them as much as possible about what i know i don't have the answers but i'd also say anybody who tells you they have the answers they're probably not being forthright because the reality of this situation is even in the city that has experienced so much and so many downturns this one is unique No one really knows how COVID is going to play out and how that's gonna affect our fiscal picture in the long term. And so one thing I think is worth saying is, you know, we don't know for sure. But I think we also should talk about what we're thinking about and what we can best do to plan and and protect our core services, which are fire and EMS operations. You know, there's a few ways we think about this. One is We have to plan for a downturn. We can't pretend it's not happening. It may hopefully be not as bad as we think. You know, the the plan for the worst, hope for the best is definitely a mantra I think is relevant here in these times. So we have to plan for what might be pretty severe cuts in the future. And the best way to plan for that is to try to find places that we can cut now and even try to find places that we would be willing to cut given two bad choices. And so one example of that I would give is is furloughs versus layoffs. Um, I don't want to furlough anybody, and I don't want to lay anybody off. But if I was given the choice, I'd prefer to furlough someone before I laid them off, because that's a permanent change in their job situation and, and the economic outlook for their family. So we do a lot of contingency planning. You know, we talk about how we can cut programs that might protect core operations. And then we talk about if we had to go to those more painful cuts, how can we do the least painful first? And how can those protect us from the most painful cuts? Um, So we do talk about things like early retirement. We do talk about things like furloughs. We do talk about, you know, cuts in programs. We do, unfortunately, I know it's not very popular to talk about cuts in discretionary overtime, but the goal of all that, you know, is is we are one department and we're a family and we, we want to do our best to protect the entire organization, and that really means protecting fire and EMS operations, and it means protecting our frontline workers. So we're doing as much of that planning and thinking as we can possibly do. I think what's probably most stressful for our members, as you hear constantly in the news about furloughs and layoffs with no, you know, no real details. And I, I recognize that's stressful. And I, I just say to people, you know, that's the natural course of these things. The politicians at the federal, state, and city level are all negotiating, hoping to get various sources of funds that may lessen the pain for us here in New York City. And as a result, they end up talking about these things at length in the press. But that's one part of the negotiation. And that's the one that's out of our hands. The part of the negotiation that is in our hands is creating plans to put forward once they do know what bailout funds they're getting or what borrowing they might be getting from the state Senate, and to be able to put forward plans that best protect the agency. So, you know, we have to deal with both at the same time. And we also realize, you know, how much that conversation being out there without any specificity is really stressful for our members and their families. I wish I could guarantee that those things weren't going to happen, but... You know, I would be lying if I did, but I can say that we are doing everything in our power to prevent those things from happening. You know, I I know firsthand the effects of layoffs. You know, I, I come from a family where my father was laid off. I come from a family of factory workers in Flint, Michigan. So not only more than layoffs, but, you know, seeing the consequences that like a long-term failure can have on a community. So it's really personal for me uh, trying to do everything we can to make sure we all make it through this together.
1: Challenging times for sure. Hopefully we have some success with the funding coming our way.
2: Yeah, I I think there'll be bright spots and and low spots, and I think we're going to have to prepare for both. But I am hopeful we'll make it through in the end, but I think it's going to be probably a rough couple
1: of years for everybody. Uh, Are there any other ongoing projects that would be of interest to the field?
2: So I think in this post-COVID world, which is a new reality for everybody. We really have to look at all of our current projects and the projects that we were working towards in the future and prioritize what's gonna be the most critical for fire and EMS operations. And those are the things we really need to move forward with and we're looking at those and gonna move forward with them aggressively. One of the biggest projects we're working on over the course of the next few years, this is not immediate, is the uh, new SCBA. Uh, Our contract is up and we are moving to a new NFPA standard. And so the chief of fire operations, Tom Richardson, along with a number of other chiefs in operation, myself and fiscal, have already formed a working group and are already actively looking at, you know, what is out there in the market and trying to both put together a plan for how this process will unfold how we'll procure that but also trying to get an understanding of what the new technology is out there and you know which which pieces of that technology would really benefit fire operations i am also working closely with the chief of ems operations lil bonsignor about strategic projects that we need to move forward on in regards to pre-hospital care for ems
1: in regards to that you talk about technology and we're living in a world where it's advancing exponentially, and we're married to this governmental procurement process. How do you deal with those challenges?
2: The problem is it has downsides, like any anything. And the biggest downside is that it's such a lengthy process. When it comes to technology or any industry that moves quickly is sometimes what might be groundbreaking technology at the beginning of the procurement process is old technology by the end. And so there's a couple of ways we're trying to deal with that. You know, we can't change the process, but there are different pieces in the process that we can speed up or slow down. And I think as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, a lot of this is about forward planning, you know, and that's really on my office is I really need to know what fire and EMS might be looking for in five years or two years like this SCBA. And if we can plan that far out, we can shorten the process a little bit. You know, there are ways to not cause it to extend as much as it does sometimes. And a lot of that is about planning. So that's one piece. I think the other one, and sort of more importantly, and this directly relates to technology, is that you know these devices we all have in our pockets are truly revolutionary. You know, And I don't think we, we give that enough credit anymore because we're all so used to them. But what that means for the department is what we used to have to do in the realm of technology was to go buy a unique piece of equipment that was customized just for the FDNY and it would take us five years to get it. And by the time we got it, it was old technology. And it was so unique that everybody had to learn how to use it from scratch. All it means is we have to take the data that Fire and EMS are looking for and marry it with the technology that's already in these devices. And that's I think gonna be the biggest change and the biggest advantage for getting technology into the field that gives our members better situational awareness because we can do that quickly. We've put together a team. By marrying a group of technologists with fire and EMS officers from the field and having them create something together from the beginning, I think what you see are applications that are rolled out that are immediately usable and are robust enough that the whole job can use them. And so we've done that in a couple of these applications that you've seen rolled out and we're hoping to replicate that. Many of people that are probably listening to this have seen the Incident Command app. That's a perfect example because we already have the iPads and all that technology, whether it's the Google Maps coming up and showing you the satellite view, all that technology already exists. We don't have to go procure it.
1: You oversaw essentially putting an end to the unified call-taking program, which really just took some of the power away from our fire department dispatchers. Now you have over a year's worth of data, a year plus since it's been live, how do you go back and evaluate it as a success?
2: You know this was one that I thought I thought would be easy to be honest with you you know it seemed when when somebody brought me the problem, it seemed pretty logical that this wasn't working and that we should go back to the way we'd been doing it before that there was no advantage to our dispatchers and then ultimately our members having less information and so there really was you know no disagreement about moving it back into the hands of the fire department and ensuring that Our trained dispatchers had the information that our firefighters needed. You know, unfortunately in government, everything takes a little bit of time. So it did take uh, a lot of lobbying, a lot of data, a lot of meetings. But we did get that change made. And I think it's been resoundingly successful. And we are hoping to see it now that we've proven it can be successful on the fire side, see that on the EMS side as well. And your question was, how do we know? Well, it's quantitative and qualitative for us. You know, we do measure these things. So... We tracked the end-to-end response time mm-hmm. after we made that change, and we saw that in many cases it was shorter. And no case was it longer. At uh, worst, it stayed the same, and at best, it got shorter. So we knew quantitatively that that change had been successful. I'd also say qualitatively, I go to firehouses right. and I ask that question, um, especially right after we made the change. Resoundingly, I hear people it's say,
1: the yeah, better information yeah and I'd
2: actually say probably more than we're even seeing in the data qualitatively, our members are saying things like they're getting better information, that they're going on fewer runs that aren't real. And so I think in all regards, we've gotten good feedback all around, and we're now considering making that same move on the EMS side oh. because of that success.
1: Yeah, I agree. My impression has been successful. How long have you had now at the fire department?
2: I think I'm close to seven years.
1: Which I know the is in a long day, time here. The first day into your seventh year, you have seven years.
2: Seven years, then. It is hard to imagine my life without the fire department. At this point, I I think that's something I certainly hear from the, our uniform members. So I'm now starting to understand why that's true. It's a really special place, and while I knew that in the ways that a lot of people know that, I don't think that provides a full explanation of what's so great about the fire department. I think more than anything, the fire department is a family, just like family. That can be stressful and crazy, um, just like my own family. But I think this is a family and that there is a tremendous amount of loyalty and support that comes along with that family. And I think once you know that, it's hard to forget. You know, I don't, I don't think I'll ever approach any, any job or any situation the same way after kind of learning the values of the FDNY. I'm truly in awe every day of what our members do, and that never fades for me. That helps motivate me and and keep me working to make sure that they are served, because that is why people like me are here, to make sure that they can run into that burning building as safely as possible, that they can respond to that medical call as quickly as they can with the equipment they need. And, you know, that's really what I try to keep in mind every day is is how— how amazing what they do is and how it's my job to help
1: support that mission. That's great. Well, we appreciate it. Thanks again for coming down and taking the time to spend with us today.
2: Sure. Thanks, Chief.
1: And thanks for tuning in to this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org.
0: FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's Bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYfoundation.org and help New York's Bravest save a life today.